Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 24 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is Part 2 of a two-part story. Please listen to Season 2, Episode 23 for more details on this case. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Roy Fontaine, Roy Hall, Archibald Thompson Hall, Roy Salvanon and Roy Thompson Hall were names and aliases used by the same man, but throughout this podcast we will simply refer to him as Roy Fontaine or Roy Hall. Part 2. Roy Fontaine, the Murderer After his release from prison in 1970, Roy Fontaine had accepted a job at Whittingham Hospital and was staying at a prison hostel nearby in Preston. Under the watchful eye of staff, Roy carried out his duties as the hospital porter. While waiting for his boyfriend David Bernard to get parole, Roy Fontaine started a fling with one of his co-workers Mary Coggle. Mary's unhealthy obsession with criminals and willingness to do whatever Roy wanted saw her being convinced to act as a go-between for him and David. As an ex-convict at the time, Roy wasn't permitted to visit prison inmates, so Mary would visit David, hand-delivering love letters and other gifts from Roy. Roy used his leisure time before the prison hostel curfew to visit an RAF drinking club. 
While there, he began talking to Hazel Patterson, a well-liked widow who owned a newsagent. Roy gained her trust by suggesting improvements to her business, like adding strategically placed mirrors around the shop so she could keep an eye on her staff. Like many of the adult relationships in Roy's life, the pair began to sleep together. Roy wasn't attracted to Hazel and only did it as he believed that's what she wanted. He's quoted as saying, It was more because I thought she expected it of me than from any great lust on my part. Hazel eventually sold the newsagents, bought Roy a Jaguar car and placed the funds from the sale into a joint account the two shared. While he was still obligated to work at the hospital, Roy also continued his affair with Mary Coggle and to complicate matters, he started a relationship with another chef employed there. With a sexual appetite that never seemed to be sated, Roy claims around this time he started an affair with his brother's girlfriend. With his parole period coming to an end, Roy said he still loved David Bernard, but while out socialising at a party in London, he met Ruth Holmes. Ruth worked as a fashion designer, and in Roy's own words, she was elegance personified. The couple were married, but not before Roy left Preston, emptying Hazel Patterson's bank account in the process. With his new wife, Roy moved to a property in Hammersmith, London, but he didn't sever all ties from his former life in Preston. Roy still kept in touch with Mary Coggle to ensure that she continued to visit David, bringing him whiskey and gifts while he was still in prison. Ruth Holmes wasn't aware of a new husband's past. While browsing the wanted ads, Roy spotted a job as a butler working for an extremely wealthy household in Warwickshire. Much like his previous scams, he planned to replace the household valuables and jewellery with cheap replicas. His wife would be none the wiser as he would return to her on the weekends and his boyfriend David, who was still in prison, had no way of knowing about his double life as a married man. This was going to be his last big job and then he would retire from a life of crime. Just as he was settling into his new role as a butler, he found himself in possession of a set of confidential government papers. A friend of Roy's had tipped him off about a suitcase secured by a large combination lock that his friend's married lover kept in his hallway. Certain there were items of value in it, Roy was asked to steal it, sell the contents and give his acquaintance a cut. But when Roy obtained the case, there were no valuables inside. However, it did contain a set of confidential papers owned by a cabinet minister who reported directly to the Home Secretary. With the papers in his possession, Roy started planning a very dangerous game. His initial idea was to try and barter with the cabinet minister. His boyfriend's release from prison for the secret papers. But while on the call, before mentioning too much information, it occurred to Roy that as soon as he said David's name, it would lead right back to him, so he slammed the phone down. Still unsure of what to do with the briefcase, he was contacted by an old friend, Patrick Rafferty, who explained that he had some stolen foreign currency that he wanted to sell. Patrick had served time in whole prison with Roy and David, so agreed to visit Roy, who would give him a fair price for the currency. The two arranged to meet at a bar in Sullyhall, and once there they began to reminisce about their time in prison. 
The more Roy drank, the more his feelings got the better of him. Patrick had introduced Roy to his wife Ruth, but as Roy became more inebriated, he told his friend about his feelings towards David Bernard, the secret government documents and his attempts to blackmail a cabinet minister to get David released. As the evening drew to a close, Roy said his goodbyes and thought nothing more of his night out and the secrets he'd uttered. That week, Roy returned to his job as a butler in Warwickshire, but when he returned home on the weekend, Ruth was distraught. Patrick had told her all about the relationship between Roy and David. There was no denying it. Ruth collapsed to the floor in a flood of tears. Roy returned to work the following week, trying to focus his mind elsewhere and simply concentrate on his duties when he received a visit from two gentlemen from the special branch of the police force. Patrick Rafferty had spoken to them too. Roy was arrested and the briefcase containing the incriminating evidence was collected by the officers. Ruth persuaded a friend who happened to be a lawyer to represent Roy. Roy offered a guilty plea of possessing stolen goods and was sentenced to two years in prison. He was first moved to Longlarton in Worcestershire, but despite his transgressions, Ruth continued to visit her husband. She was looking for answers. Roy told her he was bisexual, and in regards to his relationship with David Bernard, Roy later explained, I loved her as much as I could any woman, but not as much as I could a man. After admitting his feelings, Ruth told Roy she would be seeking a divorce. Roy had only been at Longlarton Prison for a few days when he would meet another inmate called David. David Wright, otherwise known as Dave, was in his mid-twenties and over two decades younger than Roy. To no one's surprise, Pear began a sexual affair, but all the while Mary Coggle was still doing Roy's bidding on the outside, dutifully visiting David Bernard in Hull Prison before his release. When David Bernard was granted parole, Mary was given the keys to Roy's car to collect him. The car was to be given to David, and while the tables had turned, David Bernard was permitted to visit Roy in prison. Sadly, after only four weeks of freedom, the car that David received as a gift to celebrate his release would be the very vehicle to cause his unfortunate demise. In the spring of 1974, David Bernard was killed in a high-speed crash on the M6 motorway. After the death of his lover, Roy Fontaine was heartbroken. Behind bars, he found solace in his relationship with Dave Wright, and in exchange for sex, he told Dave about Grimshaw Hall, the manor where he had worked as a butler before starting his sentence. The pair began to plan a burglary. It would be too obvious for Roy to do the job, so Dave was instructed to undertake the theft when he was released. His victims would be none the wiser, and Roy would have the perfect alibi and some money waiting for him when he left prison. Weeks after Dave's release, Roy saw that Grimshaw Hall had been burgled on TV, but heard nothing more from Dave. Frustrated and alone, Roy clung to the briefest hope that he might be released early. 
14 months into his incarceration, Roy was released from Longlarton Prison. He was required to spend the remaining part of his sentence in a prison hostel in Birmingham. The room he was staying in housed three other men, and according to Roy, the conditions were filthy. He voiced his disgust to the warder, stating, I hope you don't think I'm going to live in this room. The response he received was, you'll live where we tell you to live. Disappointed with his living arrangements, Roy had had enough and decided to retrieve his emergency funds. £300 in rolled up notes were removed from his rectum. Roy left the hostel and journeyed to the pub over the road. After consuming a significant amount of alcohol, he decided to call his stepfather John Wooten to bring him some money and a fake passport. The pair drove to Scotland, after which Roy boarded a ferry to Ireland, only to be awoken by the police the next day. He was arrested and taken to Walton Prison in Liverpool to serve the remaining eight months of his two-year sentence. Roy felt the building and conditions of the prison were substandard, so he went on a hunger strike for a month, demanding he be moved back to Long Larton. The prison wardens finally relented and Roy got his way. In June 1975, Roy received some bad news. Marion, his mother, had died of cancer. He was permitted to attend her funeral, but only if he was handcuffed and accompanied by prison staff. He felt he couldn't attend the service in chains, so he refused. Instead, he prayed in his cell. After his release from prison, he went to stay with his mother's widower, John, who had since moved to Lytham, a seaside resort in Lancashire. As Roy walked along the seafront, he noticed the front doors of a hotel were wide open. He wandered in and stole three mink coats from the reception area. He slowly felt a spark returning that he'd lost all those years ago. Roy gave one of the coats to his friend's wife and took another to his ex-partner Ruth. On a doorstep, Roy apologised profusely for his past actions and the couple briefly rekindled their relationship. The reunion would only last for less than a night, when, in a moment of passion, Roy blew any chance he might have had with Ruth by shouting Dave at the point of climax. With his tail between his legs, Roy returned to his stepfather's. One day, while scouring the wanted ads, Roy saw a position at Curlcutton House in Scotland. Lady Margaret Hudson, otherwise known as Peggy, needed a butler and within a week Roy filled the position. Lady Hudson was elderly, small in stature and by all accounts incredibly generous. Her husband, a junior cabinet minister, had died leaving his wife and their Labrador in a large home filled with antiques. After moving into the 18th century manor, Roy took to the job of planning to rob Lady Hudson but as the weeks passed, he found that he rather enjoyed his new position and the freedom it afforded him. Roy had Lady Hudson's trust. He could use the family car, the swimming pool and the shooting range. Other staff members even recall him changing the clock so he could serve dinner early and spend an hour more down the pub. Then one day when he made a call to John to see how he was doing, he found out an old lover Dave Wright had been looking for him. It had been a few years since their time together in prison and Roy wanted to know why he didn't provide his fair share of the burglary of Grimshaw Hall. 
Roy discovered Dave was on the run after committing a number of robberies in Birmingham and needed a place to hide. Roy invited him to the manor, hoping sex would be on the cards. Dave was permitted by Lady Hudson to stay as a guest, providing he did odd jobs around the house. Roy had memorised all of the jewellery on Lady Hudson's dressing table and he would check it daily, planning the burglary he might commit in the weeks or even months after departing his position. One day, when browsing the dressing table, he noticed a ring had been taken. Frustrated, he knew who took it. Dave Wright had met a girl and given the ring to her. An almighty argument broke out between the two and Dave stormed out, taking the car, and so eventually Roy went to bed alone. Around 4am, Roy was woken by the sound of a vehicle travelling up the gravel driveway. Dave was back. He didn't come upstairs straight away, but Roy could hear him downstairs before he staggered into the room. Drunk on Lady Hudson's champagne and holding a 22 gauge rifle taken from the shooting range, Dave fired the weapon and blew a hole in the headboard just above Roy's head. Dave wanted Roy to agree to stop working there so they could finally rob the place. With the rifle still smoking, Dave struck Roy in the face, causing a small gash above his eye. The sight of blood brought Dave to his senses and he began to cry apologetically. After Roy took the gun from Dave's hands, he returned it to the gun store and the pair went to bed. In the early hours, they had sex for the last time, as soon Dave Wright would be dead. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When Roy awoke, he was still seething about the events of that morning, but made his lover believe all was forgiven. Roy suggested they spend the day rabbit hunting. They went to pick up their guns, and Dave chose a 12-bore shotgun along with eight cartridges. Roy knew which gun he was going to pick, the same rifle David tried to shoot him with. Lady Hudson's dog Tessa joined them as they walked the hills and woodland looking for rabbits. Roy bided his time, waiting for Dave to run out of ammunition, not using his rifle even once. Roy then began to discuss their argument. Dave sat anxiously on a mound of grass. He reached into his pocket for a cigarette. Lady Hudson was away for the weekend, as were her staff. Roy took aim and shot Dave Wright four times in the head and chest. The ground was too frozen to dig a grave, and even if Roy did, the odour after a couple of days would be so pungent anyone that passed would notice the smell. Roy hadn't thought things through. He settled on removing Dave's clothes and anything that could identify him. He took his body to a small stream nearby where he weighed him down with the largest boulders he could carry. He gathered twigs, leaves, branches and anything he could find to cover his lover's body. Later that night, Roy had to drive to Carlisle to pick up his employer and when she got back, she asked where Dave was. Roy said Dave had moved on as he had gained employment elsewhere. He went to bed that night and returned to Dave's body the next day with a fresh set of eyes, but the scene still looked staged and unnatural. He added foliage, took some away, rearranged it, even shifting the algae foaming in the water around the body. He went back every day for a week to ensure that Dave's body would never be found. During this time, Lady Hudson grew suspicious of Roy's activities and wanted to contact the police, but before she did, she received a telephone call from a man who said he was a CID officer from London. He informed Lady Hudson that her butler was a criminal, a con man and a thief. When she called the local police, they too had received a similar call. They agreed to visit the manor and although they had no reason to arrest him, police agreed to assist the elderly lady with escorting Roy off her property. She gave him three months severance pay and Roy left. Roy was sure the calls were made by Hazel Patterson. Maybe she'd somehow found out where he worked and called to warn the local police and his employer as some sort of revenge for him fleeing before cleaning out her bank account. Roy left the country and went to Paris for a month. When he realised the coast was clear and he wasn't being hunted for the murder of Dave Wright, Roy came back to England and rented a holiday home where he searched the wanted ads for a new position as a butler. It wasn't long before he found one. In November 1977, he began working for the Scott Elliott family in Chelsea, London. 
Walter Scott Elliott was an 82-year-old former Labour MP and had amassed a sizeable fortune. His wife Dorothy, 20 years his junior, had also come from an immensely wealthy family. They owned a number of homes, each one filled with the things Roy desired, jewellery, antiques, art and valuables. Of course, Roy's ploy wasn't to get the job and retire from a life of crime. From the minute he stepped through the door of the lavish residence, he had a plan. He wanted to drain the Scott Elliott's bank account and make counterfeit jewellery to replace their own. But with a job this big, he needed an accomplice. Mary Coggle had moved to London and was working in a pub in Knightsbridge. She supplemented her income with sex work and Roy assumed that Mary might know of a suitable accomplice. As Christmas approached in 1977, she introduced Roy to a client of hers, 38-year-old Michael Kitto, a petty criminal with convictions for theft and motor offences. Michael wanted to make it big in the criminal underworld and had attempted to hang around with the craze. Nothing came of it. One detective later recalled he probably committed more than a 100 robberies and burglaries but never made more than £10. Michael was introduced to Roy. Mesmerised by the butler's stories and tall tales, he was eager to work with the accomplished thief. A key piece of information that was lost on Michael at this point was that Roy had spent over half his adult life in prison. Roy was great at stealing, but clearly wasn't very good at not getting caught. Roy thought Michael was a good match. He would probably expect a small cut and could do the physical jobs that Roy, now 54, thought he couldn't handle. Roy also wanted to rob the neighbours and he wasn't quite agile enough to edge his way from the Scott Elliot's window to next door. After a night of drinking in the pub where Mary worked, Roy decided to give Michael a grand tour of the home and all he planned to steal. Walter and Dorothy Scott Elliot slept in separate rooms and that night Dorothy was away spending the evening at a clinic. Her husband wouldn't be a problem. He'd grown frail with age and Roy used sleeping pills to get him to fall asleep every night. Roy took his accomplice into each room, taking the time to point out the most desirable pieces. As they made their way to Dorothy's room, the door opened. What's this man doing in my house at this hour, Roy? said Dorothy. She hadn't stayed at the clinic after all. She had decided she would prefer to come home and stay in her own bed. At this point, accounts differ. Roy claimed Michael Kitto grabbed the elderly woman, placing his hands firmly over her face and nostrils. Other reports say Dorothy Scott Elliott had died from being smothered with a pillow by both men. Either way, as she fought her attackers, the commotion woke her husband. Walter's bedroom door was opened and the pensioner began to shuffle down the hall. Roy met him before he got to his wife and reassured him everything was okay before tucking Walter back into bed. The next day, before Walter got up, Roy and Michael contacted Mary. They needed her help to obtain a fake driving license from one of her clients and would be picking her up later in the day. That morning, Walter Scott Elliott was told his wife had gone shopping. While Walter went out to lunch, Roy hired a Ford Cortina, wrapping up Dorothy's body and placing it in the boot. Dressed in a grey wig and Dorothy's clothes, Mary Coggle was given the checkbooks from Dorothy's various bank accounts and visited numerous branches where she forged Mrs. Scott Elliott's signature. Later that evening, as he usually did, 
Roy gave Walter his sleeping medication concealed in a glass of whiskey. Instead of going to bed, Roy led his employer to the Ford Cortina. Michael Kitto sat in the front and Mary Coggle in the back. She was still wearing Dorothy's clothes, including her fur coat, and also she had on a wig in an attempt to look more like Mrs. Scott Elliot. Roy told Walter to sit next to his wife. Confused and sleepy, the 82-year-old was compliant, and Walter was told they were going on a trip to Scotland. They drove north, stopping regularly to top up the frail man's dose of sleeping pills. They stayed the night at a holiday rental in Newton Arloche, and the next day they continued north, looking for an isolated place to bury Dorothy's body. They travelled around the back roads with Walter often asleep in the back. Fifteen miles from the village of Bracco, Roy picked his spot. Michael dug a shallow grave in the frozen ground, and both he and Roy lifted Dorothy's body from the car into the hole, which they covered with soil and foliage. They returned to the rental cottage and put Walter to bed. The three felt relief that Dorothy's body was now hidden miles away, but they couldn't relax. They drank into the night, arguing about the fate of Walter Scott Elliot. Roy's priority was money. He wanted as much as possible, as quickly as possible. A decision was made. Walter was to be killed the next day. A separate burial place was decided, and tomorrow they would drive deep into the highlands. Their journey was broken up by a stop overnight in a hotel, and then the next morning after breakfast, Walter paid the establishment by cheque. Once again, they began driving with the heavily drugged Walter in the back, along with Mary Coggle dressed in his wife's mink coat. They reached the scenic highlands, looking for the perfect place to commit the murder, when the silence was broken by Walter, who needed the toilet. Roy surveyed their surroundings. This would be the place. As Walter relieved himself by the side of the road, Roy and Michael struck. They knocked the confused man off his feet, dragging him across the moss and away from view. They wrapped a scarf around his throat, trying to strangle him, but after a sudden burst of strength, Walter fought his attackers and managed to grasp under the scarf, relieving some of the pressure. He was not going to give up easily, and so Roy went to the car to pick up a spade from the boot. The spade had been used to bury Dorothy Scott Elliot, and now it would be used by Michael Kitto to cave in her husband's head. It was over. A blanket of branches and moss were placed on Walter's lifeless body. The trio fled the scene and stopped at a hotel in Aviemore. Mary and Michael headed straight for the bar and stayed there for hours. Roy sat nursing his brandy, growing increasingly more agitated with Mary as the night wore on. She was loud, drunk, and was creating a scene by making calls to people back home. Despite the act they had just committed, Mary's obnoxious behaviour chipped away at Roy. Roy was sure she would be showing off her £4,000 mink coat and diamond jewellery to friends back home, and this was bound to draw attention. The next day took Mary back to the cottage in Newton Alosh and left her there while he returned with Michael to the Scott Elliot's flat in London. They stole a selection of antiques and jewellery, taking them to one of Roy's contacts. They made a sizable profit before returning to the cottage to see Mary. As soon as they arrived, 
they realised Mary's behaviour hadn't changed since the drink had worn off. They both believed she was a liability and would certainly draw attention to herself. Roy said he would talk to her to see if she would act more inconspicuously by giving up a new coat and jewellery. Michael retorted, If she's awkward, I'll just fuck her one more time and then kill her. Roy's request didn't go down too well, as Mary loved the mink coat and wasn't prepared to give it up no matter how many times she was told it could be used as evidence if the trio were arrested. After hours of convincing, she finally relented when Roy said he would buy her a new mink coat when they got to London. Later that night, Roy and Mary had sex on top of the coat before Roy said he was going to burn it. But Mary had a change of heart. She didn't want Roy to throw it in the fire. She said she wouldn't wear it outside, but she was definitely going to keep it. Roy was enraged. He picked up a poker from the fireplace and struck Mary Coggle so forcefully Dorothy Scott Elliott's wig was knocked off her head. Michael Kitto picked up Mary and tied her to a chair before Roy grabbed a carrier bag and placed it securely over Mary's head. The two men drank brandy, waiting patiently as Mary Coggle took a last breath. In an attempt to throw police off the scent, when they found Mary, Roy addressed her in men's clothes. Roy was later quoted as saying his reasoning behind this was to make the police think that this was some kind of lesbian murder. Like Dorothy Scott Elliott, they bundled Mary into the boot of the Ford Cortina. They drove to southwest Scotland the next day and found a picturesque bridge near Lockerbie. They stopped the car and threw Mary's body over the edge. They made their way down the embankment and arrived at where she had landed. They picked up Mary's body and tossed it into the stream. This time, no attempt was made to disguise what they had done. Roy and Michael returned to the Scott Elliott's property in Chelsea to sell more of their treasured possessions and while they were there, Roy's stepfather called. He was unhappy as Roy's brother Donald was staying with him after he had just been released from prison. Donald had been arrested and charged with burglary but was also wanted for child molestation. Donald had served three years in Haverick Prison in Cumbria and both Roy and John hated him for what he had done. Roy told John he would take care of it. Roy thought of murdering his own brother by getting him so drunk he would walk him into the sea and drown him. But first, the pair had to dispose of the Ford Cortina they had been travelling in, as it was more likely they would be spotted. They rented another car, a Ford Granada, an inconspicuous brand seen on many of the major roads at the time, but Roy saw one problem. The number plate was YGE. 999R. He thought it would draw attention to them and make it easy for witnesses to remember so the plates were changed. They drove to John's and Roy invited Donald to stay with him and Michael Kitto in their rented cottage in Newton Aloche. On Donald's first night in the holiday home, on January 14, 1978, he was killed after being bound with a six-inch piece of string. Roy later explained that he didn't regret murdering his brother. He callously said, Dirt under his fingernails, unshaven, slovenly. I hated having my half-brother near me. He filled me with contempt. He was scum. 
low-life scum, the skinny child of a minuscule army major. We didn't even have the same father, and he had none of my mother's characteristics or nature. Low-life, nonce, ponce, scum. Michael and Roy once again placed their victim's body in the boot of the car, where it would remain until the next day. They travelled to the Scottish border to find a suitable place to hide the body, but due to the freezing temperatures and heavy snow, they stopped off at North Berwick for a couple of drinks before they'd commenced the task of digging a shallow grave in the frozen ground. Upon leaving the pub, they realised the snowfall was getting worse, and to drive out on the roads could be their undoing if they were caught in a blizzard. The pair decided to stay in North Berwick for the night at the Blenheim House Hotel. As they were checked in by the manager, he found his new house guest somewhat suspicious, and for reasons known only to him, he called a friend that worked for the local police force. It was a slow day, so two officers paid a visit to the hotel. When they arrived, they saw the Ford Granada in the car park. They called in the plate number and found a discrepancy with the registration. Not only did the tax disc not match the number plates, but it belonged to someone else entirely who resided in Swansea. Oblivious, the suspected car thieves were inside the warm hotel having a brandy after their dinner. The pair were arrested and taken to the station. The Ford Granada was driven by a second policeman who trailed behind them, but the suspects nor the car had been searched. Roy's coat pockets bulged with clues and incriminating evidence, numbers for criminal contacts, various bank details for the Scott Elliott's accounts and receipts from the places they had stayed. After being booked in, Roy politely asked if he could use the toilet. He scooped the evidence from his pockets, tore up the paper and flushed it down the toilet before returning to the officers. After being questioned, he asked to go to the bathroom a second time and was again permitted to go unescorted. The reason for his additional toilet break was he had seen an open window in the bathroom Unsure if the tiny window would accommodate his large frame, he managed to squeeze through unscathed, landing on a blanket of snow outside. Walking as fast as he possibly could from the station, he managed to commandeer a taxi and headed to Edinburgh. If he could just get there, he could get hold of some money, a passport and a ticket away from prosecution. His hopes of fleeing the country were dashed about half an hour into the journey when the taxi was stopped at a roadblock. Roy was again arrested and returned to the station. Officers had found Donald's body, along with various items that would later become evidence connecting Roy and Michael Kitto to the murders of their victims. Sat in his cell, Roy was determined to cheat justice and avoid spending the rest of his life in prison. He asked for some water and when the guard turned his back, Roy retrieved a small pack of barbiturates he'd concealed in the same place where he'd hidden his emergency funds years before. Roy swallowed the tablets, and everything went black. He awoke a few days later in Edinburgh Hospital. His stomach had been pumped, and his life had been saved. But a mere three days later, he again attempted the same thing as guards had not completed a full cavity search. However, again it didn't work, and Roy was going to have to face the music. 
While the Roy convalesced in hospital, the investigation moved quickly. Michael Kitto had given up bits of information and the holiday home in newton Arlosh was searched. Possessions of the Scott Elliots were found. A few items that bore the family's crest had been reported missing before Roy Fontaine and Michael Kitto's capture, but foul play hadn't yet been suspected. When police looked at the case file, it mentioned that the butler had gone missing. Comparing the similarities to Roy Fontaine's history of employment and his criminal record for theft, officers knew something more sinister was at work. Michael Kitto couldn't recall the exact location where the bodies had been left, so on January 18th, Roy was taken from his hospital bed to search for his victims. The body of Walter Scott Elliot was found rather quickly, as his attackers made little attempts to hide his body. However, Dorothy's was harder to find, as even the search dogs struggled to locate her remains in the blizzard. Later that evening, Roy finally pointed out a mound of foliage where Dorothy's body was discovered underneath. Roy was then taken to Kirkleton House in Scotland to locate the remains of Dave Wright. He knew precisely where Dave was buried, but before he could point out the exact location, due to the weight of his actions, he collapsed to his knees. While he was unable to continue with the search, police dogs took over and found the remains shortly after. Mary Coggle's body had been discovered in a stream on Christmas Day. So where are we now? Two separate trials were held, one for the murder of Dave Wright and Walter Scott Elliot, as they were killed in Scotland, and another for the murders of Donald Hall and Mary Coggle. There was enough evidence for the murder of Dorothy Scott Elliot to be made, but the prosecution felt it was not in the public's interest to proceed. The investigating officers suspected Roy and Mary Coggle could well have been responsible for two more murders, the first of which was that of an American pilot years before. Roy had sent a letter to his solicitor claiming he and Mary lured the inebriated pilot to a woodland because he had stolen £1,500 from them. Although Roy never detailed the eventual fate of the American, he simply wrote, Now he is gone. Roy also claimed to have killed a mechanic in Preston. The police investigated the matter as best they could, given the limited information they had. However, no proof was found at the time, so the matter was left unresolved. The national press offered a considerable reward for more information that would lead to an arrest, but no one came forward. Many believe this was Roy's last scam, after he later admitted that the story was fabricated. In May 1978, both Roy Hall, appearing under his birth name of Archibald, and Michael Kitto arrived at Edinburgh Crown Court. It was Michael's 40th birthday, and he quipped to a journalist in the court that life begins at 40. Uncharacteristically, Roy stayed quiet throughout the trial. The judge was told about a court appearance back in 1944, when a psychiatrist deemed that Roy wasn't fit to stand trial as the doctor believed him to be insane. This time, he was assessed by two separate psychiatrists. Both deemed him sane and fit to stand trial, though one described him as a psychopath with a serious personality disorder. 
He added, he is a man who shows no hint of guilt or shame or concern for the feelings or fate of his victims. During one of the trials, Roy was disappointed when a pathologist told the court his brother's cause of death was in fact the chloroform placed over his airways, not by drowning. Roy despised his brother for what he did and later said, it may have been a waste of time, but I still enjoyed holding him down. Roy Hall was found guilty both in Edinburgh and in London. In Scotland, the recommendation was that he serve a minimum of 15 years. In England, the judge gave the recommendation that he never be released. The judge addressed Roy in the dock. Having regard to your cold-blooded nature and your undoubted leadership in these terrible matters, I have no hesitation in recommending to the Home Secretary that you shall not be considered for parole during your natural life, save for the case of emergence of serious infirmity. Michael Kitto was sentenced to life imprisonment for three of the murders. He didn't receive a recommended minimum sentence in Scotland, but received a 15-year minimum in England. Tired of moving from prison to prison, Roy said he would rather die of starvation than stay in his dirty cell any longer. He began a hunger strike and claimed he only consumed water and milky tea for a total of 84 days. The opinion of doctors is that he wouldn't make it to the new year. He entered whole prison weighing over 13 stone, but his weight had plummeted to about 7 in Wakefield Prison. Roy made arrangements to be cremated and have his ashes scattered close to his mother's in Scotland. He was hoping that by starving himself, prison officials would have no other option than to move him somewhere more to his liking, possibly a prison in Scotland, the country where he had been born. While doctors looked after Roy, he wasn't being moved any time soon. He finally relented, and on Christmas Day in 1979, he had his first mouthful of food in nearly three months. Roy Hall had attempted to take his own life on numerous occasions, and this would not be the last. In 1995, 17 years into his sentence, he wrote a scribbled note to the Observer newspaper from Full Sutton Prison. An extract read, At 72 years of age, I lead a quiet life, daily praying for death. Why not ask the government to give me a mercy killing, a pill in a glass of wine? A few days before sending the note, he received a letter from the Home Secretary, as did 13 other prisoners in Britain, confirming what he already knew. He would be spending the remainder of his life behind bars. Roy Hall, otherwise known as Roy Fontaine, died of a stroke in Kingston Prison in Portsmouth on September 16, 2002. He was 78 years old. Michael Kitto was released, but his whereabouts and eventual fate are unknown. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. 
Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast provider. To support They Walk Among Us and receive early access to ad-free episodes, please head to patreon.com forward slash They Walk Among Us. You can follow us on Twitter at TWAU underscore podcast or follow us on Instagram and Facebook under They Walk Among Us podcast. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.